mate, James. How's it going? Good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. And that's exactly how my room looked like when I was studying as well. <laughs> oh, mate, your situational awareness on point. <laughs> I remember I had this pile of notes that was just like I was it, was, it was a sign of pride about how many SAQs I wrote out. Like, it was, like if I could stack it up to a meter high, that was like my. <laughs> I love that. Line. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're my first uh, guinea pig for this, so that, that's pretty pretty interesting. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Uh, it uh, <laughs> sounds like a good initiative, although I'll reserve my judgment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. After after you get all the hecklers and trolls on, on YouTube, which, uh, which happens. <laughs> oh, can join the queue, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, so I might as well get started. Hi, everyone. This is Lahiri from ABCs of Anesthesia, and today's a very special episode because Right now, I'm going to go through Aviva with uh, one of our trainees from, from Tasmania. He's very kindly offered to be part of this, where I'll just ask some questions and we'll have a bit of a chat. His name's James, and he was part of the Aviva Bootcamp um, maybe about a week ago or so. Uh, and this, uh, this special episode will be out, me recording this as a podcast and for the YouTube channel as well. So the, so the podcast is ABCs of Anesthesia, and the YouTube channel is of the same name. And yeah, hopefully this will be useful uh, to show how you can talk through situations as well as giving some interesting knowledge about these very, you know, very advanced, I'd say these very advanced uh, anesthetic topics as well. Um, and how, I guess, consultants or senior trainees think about this stuff. Welcome, James. How are you going? Hey, Lahiri. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to catching up and... Yeah, sounds good. Bruce <laughs> turn. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. So you're, you're in Tasmania... Uh, uh, yeah, so fourth year trainee down in Hobart at the moment, but um, being part of the Tasmanian Anesthetic Training Program. So I've done a tour of duty around the state. Oh, nice. Uh, and Lonnie before this, and um, yeah, just in the thick of exams at the moment. And and how is it going? Is it? Uh, I remember it was pretty stressful for me. How's it going with you, with your with your prep? Yeah, it, for sure, it's a stressful time. Although I think um, you know we're constantly getting exposed to people who are in much more stressful situations than us at work as well which kind of puts it into perspective so yeah. you know that's so I'm true about it. Isn't, isn't it great it's one it's one of those weird accidents of being medicine that almost everyone you meet is doing worse doing worse than you they're unwell they're, they're sick so you, you you just have to have perspective with that um yeah it'd be far far <laughs> this is an interesting thought experiment it'd be far worse if we were in an environment where everyone was doing you know, well in every other circumstance and all we had to do was compare ourselves to that. Because what did it say? Happiness is having uh, more than your neighbour. Isn't, isn't that right? Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and not having a fence dispute, I think. Yeah, exactly. Not having a fence dispute. Yeah, nice one. Um, yeah, so why don't, we, why, don't, why don't we get cracking? So what I thought I might do is I'll just type this stem into the chat so you've got it there and give you a bit of time, um, but feel free to talk whenever you was like, let, take one to two minutes. Um, but for the, for the audience, it's the stem of this exam or this question or the situation is you are called down to review a patient for the evening emergency list in your tertiary hospital. And so that means you've got a few theaters, you've got an ICU. Um, so it's pretty well equipped. And if the patient is a 60 year old female, let's say they're 70 kilograms with small bowel obstruction for laparotomy and they look pretty unwell. Um, uh, so what do you, what do you want to do to manage this patient? It's a very broad question, management, uh, meaning assessment and, and other things, but let's, I'll, I'll let you think about that and we'll crack on. Okay. So uh, this is a patient with a high risk surgical condition who needs emergency surgery. And um, my priorities in terms of management um, would be first to assess the patient 
uh, do a formal risk assessment for um, their risk of um, perioperative complications, given this is a major abdominal surgery, consult and optimise where appropriate, and then plan the intra and post-operative course based on the findings of my risk assessment um, and the current availability of theatre and surgical staff. Yeah, good. Let's say theatre is available whenever you need it and you're down in ED now. Uh, what do you do? Yeah, so my assessment would consist of a history examination investigation, uh, looking at any, uh, using my standard anaesthetic assessment, uh, plus specifically focusing on this patient's um, symptoms of, and signs uh, related to their small bowel obstruction. So I'd be particularly looking for um, whether they've got any features of um, dehydration or shock associated with volume let's depletion. Say, let's say you get down and you, and you see the patient and from the end of the bed, they look really unwell. Um, there's people running around doing stuff and you're the senior doctor there. They're looking really unwell. What do you do? Okay. So um, this is an, now a somewhat emergency situation and I uh, use my doctor's ABCDE approach initially um, and rapidly assess and simultaneously manage any threats to life. Um, yeah, focusing on a quick airway assessment, support breathing with 100% oxygen and then circulatory support. And I'm going to pause there for a second. So just for the audience as well, um, you know, when you're in the exam, it's very hard to get all the cues that you would normally do. And I think James would agree that as soon as you see a patient, there's either two arms, one which is uh, assessment of patient who's unwell is exactly what you said, doctors ABCD, and, and assessment of the patient who looks well is just history examination investigation. And what, what to, to you, what's the difference between those two types of assessment? Uh, so there's a time pressure involved in the first type, I guess, which isn't in the second. And, um, yeah, other than that, I guess there's um, a much more, there's a focus on early uh, intervention and management um, in the, the unwell patient with the yeah. approach. Sounds good. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm thinking I'm just going to give supportive treatment and stabilise my life-giving vital signs and things like that, rather than worrying about a diagnosis. And so you're, you're about to tell me, you're going to do a top to tail assessment. Yeah. Tell me what you do for that or ABCD assessment. Uh, so I uh, talk to the patient and um, if they Patients talk back, yeah, then I can assume that they've got a reasonably patent airway, assess their effort and adequacy of breathing by looking at their use of respiratory muscles, near the pulse oximetry and um, apply high flow oxygen if there's any abnormalities there or in a patient who otherwise appears unwell um, mm -hmm. by a non-rebreather and then um, from a circulation point of view. And I'll give you, I'll give you the results for that. So respirators 30, they look like, they, it looks like to be an increased work of breathing just with increased respirate. Mm. The sets are 92%, um, but as you mentioned, you put them on high flow oxygen and now they're 98% on room air. Uh, anything else? I'll also take the lungs and check the position of the trachea. Yeah. Good. That, that all is normal. Auscultation shows just by basal fine creps, but nothing too significant. Yeah. Keep going. Um, so assessment of um, cardiovascular in, includes the conscious state, uh, central capillary refill and heart rate and blood pressure, mm -hmm. um, as well as additional information potentially from an ECG. Great. They've got two, two 16 gauge IVs, heart rate's 130, blood pressure is 100. Uh, two liters of crystal has already been given. Patient looks very flushed, looks pretty septic. Yeah, okay. Um, so in this setting, I'd give another 10 mil per kilo bolus of 
um, fluids and um, noting that this is the patient may be relatively hypotensive despite their normal blood pressure and is demonstrating some fine signs of potentially class uh, two shock. Um, and yeah, further um, consider the underlying cause. It sounds like sepsis. So um, at this point, I'd be also ensuring that the patient had received antibiotics um, and considering whether they're going to need um, support with vasopressors, which is reasonably likely. And so um, allocating the role of someone to um, place an um, arterial line to facilitate titration of vasopressors and urine output monitoring via an IDC. Sounds good. You get that in underwear. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, so the D brief neurological assessment, um, pupils if relevant and uh, checking a sugar and blood gas at this point uh, and then um, looking for an alternative diagnosis in terms of exposure and checking the temperature, which I'd anticipate to be high in this septic bowel obstruction. Fantastic. G says it's 15. They've had a total of 10 of morphine IV given by the paramedics over the last couple of hours uh, and in ED. Uh, I've got a quite a bit of pain and yet the temperature is 39 degrees and broad spectrum antibiotics are given. Uh, anything else? Uh, yes, I'd like to see a blood gas um, and specifically a lactate um, and pH in this circumstance as well as electrolytes given the bowel obstruction. Yeah, pH um, is, let's say the blood gas is, is on the way, uh, yeah. hasn't arrived yet. Keep going. Yeah, okay. So um, I'd review the patient's condition post-play. What do you do for E? Yeah, so uh, expose the patient, looking at oh, legs and uh, yeah, checking the temperature. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah. Good. As you look at the patient and you do assessment, you, you notice the weight is about 80 kilos, 150 centimetres, so the BMI is 35. They've actually got a really large goiter as well. Right. Um, okay. Now, the patient looks reasonally stable. All the vital signs are within kind of a normal range, but you're expecting to go to theatre. But now you've got this. Uh, what, what else do you want to assess now? What else do you want to do? Uh, so I'd also like to uh, assess this patient's goiter um, with the potential implications for our anaesthetic being airway um, implications, so compression of the airway. Um, so ask them uh, about any um, problems with breathing, stride or inability to lie flat usually, uh, and assessment including the um, relative mobility of the mass, um, whether they've got a positive Pemberton sign and whether they've got any evidence of stride or, uh, and then uh, considering whether there's been recent imaging of their neck to um, demonstrate any tracheal compression if present, uh, and as well as thinking about the um, potential endocrine manifestations of an abnormal thyroid um, and, so, and whether that's contributed to this patient's um, current presentation or, or abnormal cardiovascular um, features, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. sending off some thyroid tests. And you send off the thyroid function tests. You ask the patient, no positional symptoms, no stridor, Pemberton's negative. Uh, and, you look, and you do find that there's a CT scan and an ultrasound available. And that shows that there's no real retrosternal extension uh, and no mass effect uh, from, this, from this tumor. Right, okay. Good. So what, what do you do now? Uh, so I, it sounds like we've done a reasonable assessment of the patient and um, I'd discuss, I'd formally calculate their risk. Um, Actually, I just want to 
say, so James, so what James did there, uh, essentially, this is a really, really complex patient. You've got someone who's septic and unwell and which you've stabilized and you've got this goiter. So what, what I feel James has done is he's done what most anesthetists do normally, which is do the anesthetic assessment, but he's also then targeted each real difficult problem separately in, in an organized fashion. So uh, unwell equals deteriorating patient management, supportive management, get them stable. And then, oh, yep, there's a goiter. Now I've got a whole other bundle of things. And this bundle includes what you mentioned, which is, uh, you, you know, other you thyroid, check their thyroid function status, and is any mass effect, which is respiratory and cardiac problems. Um, and then finally, the diagnosis that sometimes you want to know is, uh, we, we want to know is malignancy as well. So that was a very succinct way of identifying what you want without saying too much extra stuff. So I, that was really good, James. Um, and now keep going. Yeah, so a formal risk assessment um, with the surgeons about their um, their plan and whether a senior surgeon has been consulted and involved and um, considering whether there's anything else we can do to optimise this patient, in particular probably electrolyte replacement, given that it sounds like their vital signs have stabilised mm-hmm. uh, and um, start thinking about preparing for the anaesthetic, so contacting the theatre coordinator, um, preparing the surgical staff and communicating with my anaesthetic nurse, um, and then also considering uh, post-operative disposition for this patient, um, So, which would be based on a, a formal risk assessment as well as their intraoperative course, but given the um, features of septic shock that were present uh, potentially present previously, they may need ICU post-op, so giving ICU a heads up. And you mentioned risk assessment. Um, how do you do a risk assessment on this patient? Uh, so I use the NSQIP um, risk calculator, yep. uh, noting that it usually slightly overcalls risk in the Australian con- context, um, mm-hmm. but there's also, a, um, I think, the NELA or NELO um, database national mm-hmm. laparotomy audit from the UK, which is very James, I, I might be wrong, but I, I've heard that the... Nesquip database under cause mortality and morbidity, uh, whereas um, our, the revised Lee's revised cardiac risk indices overestimates. But we'll we'll check that. Uh, you, you could be right. Yeah, thanks for pulling me up on that. No, no, no that's right. Is is that right? Or well, we could uh, double check. <laughs> double check. Yeah, we'll double check. Um, good. That's what I use. So that for everyone kind of listening and watching, that's risk dot is it risk dot cal- no, risk calculator r i s k calculator.facs.org uh, and that's where a really useful um yeah link to link to a whole bunch of a, a big database that will you just plug in a whole bunch of values including the surgery and demographic data for the patient how unwell they are and various various other parameters and it gives you a really comprehensive readout so it's riskcalculator.facs.org um, and it's mentioned in the most most recent for the 2014 acc ha guidelines and i'll put a link to that uh, good. Uh, so look, on your anesthetic history, you also find out that the patient's a heavy smoker, query COPD, multiple presentations to ED with bronchitis, and irregular puffy use. Patient has no GP, normal looking airway. And when you examine them, sorry, I mentioned bibasal crackles, but they've actually got a bit of wheeze. So I've <laughs> made a mistake there. So exam shows wheeze uh, across the lungs. Uh, what do you want to do? Yeah, so for this emergency procedure, um, optimization of their COPD would, um, with these, would include administration of um, salbutamol um, mm-hmm. via a 
spacer or nebulizer. Yep. Great. You do that. Um, and you're up in theater now. Every, you have everything at your disposal. Uh, after that neb that you give, the patient's still wheezy. What do you do? Uh, so I'd give ipratropium bromine, um, uh, 500 mics via a neb. Still wheezy? What do you do? So consider an alternative differential or the fact that this may just be an irreversible um, airway obstruction, which is not going to resolve, um, noting the patient's had significant um, fluid resuscitation and may have some underlying cardiac dysfunction. But given we're about to administer positive pressure ventilation, if they were oxygenating well, then I'd um, consider proceeding, um, just bearing in mind that they may be at increased risk of intraoperative bronchospasm and um, have additional agents such as magnesium and um, adrenaline available to manage this if required, as well as planning for it to use a volatile anesthetic agent. Sounds good. I guess what I'm getting at is how much albutamol and how much time would you take to delay getting the wheezes under control before you crack on with your induction? I would... It's hard to give you an exact like minutes answer, but the, I wouldn't wait for a prolonged period of time. It would be in the realm of however long it took to administer the salbutamol and the ipratropium and assess for effect, which I imagine would be probably 15 minutes. Great. How many doses could you give in that time and how many, how many would you give, do you reckon? Uh, so you could uh, repeat the dose every five minutes. Um, yeah. But I, I reckon I would probably just give one of each and if there wasn't significant improvement, given that um, the yeah, patient has these other issues and that with COPD often there is a mainly revert, irreversible um, component, I'd probably just proceed. Well, yes, would that's good. And, that, and that's good. This is, this is one of those questions where really I just want you to make a decision and you've successfully done that. It's, it is amazing because many trainees get into this problem, I guess, where they're thinking, oh, do I crack on with something as active as a wheeze? That's very bad. But I've also got an emergency patient. This is the classic damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And so the only way I can really talk around it is using words like, look, this is a, exactly what you said, really. There's an emergency. I need to progress forward. Um, I would take the time to give you know, repeated doses over the next 10 to 15 minutes as I'm putting lines in and doing all my other organizational things. And so I made all reasonable attempts to optimize this wheeze as best as possible understanding that they already, like you said, have a component of bronchospasm that's irreversible uh, because they've got COPD probably. Uh, so that way I'm moving forward with this and I'm just doing the best I can, which is very real. So that, that was good. Um, so now you've mentioned a lot of your setup as well. So I'll just rehash that, that you have two drips, you've got an art line. Um, what do you do? What, what's your plan for induction and the operation? Yeah, so this patient needs a general anaesthetic with an endotracheal tube and my um, induction plan would be for a rapid sequence induction with cricoid pressure, uh, noting the potential for hemodynamic instability and so having a uh, metaraminol infusion connected and running uh, using titrated propofol, um, so not a prefix dose, um, using three mics per kilo of fentanyl and using 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium with uh, a plan in this patient to also gently ventilate, aiming for peak pressures less than 20 centimetres of water, noting the history of COPD and likelihood of significant desaturation on induction. Um, yeah, that would, that would be induction maintenance would be with volatile anesthesia. Um, I'd give goal-directed fluid therapy based on their 
um, pulse pressure variation on their arterial line and assessment of output um, as well as their blood pressure and um, consider a central venous line if there was significant hemodynamic instability or high pressure requirements. Sure, the patient had has already had antibiotics monitor um, with 30-minute blood gases initially and then um, further depending on uh, their stability and monitor for bleeding from the surgical wound, um, consider my post-operative pain, um, pain strategy intraoperatively and, um, and then depending on the progress of the patient, um, considering post-op disposition, noticing, noting that given this patient's COPD and pre-op state, I think HDU would be warranted and I'd discuss the, it, the case with them prior to extubating, but I would plan to extubate depending on the patient's condition. So you put your induction, you do rapid sequence, you get propofol, septfentanyl and rocuronium at a big dose. Uh, what do you expect on induction? So I expect uh, there to be some loss of afterload and preload uh, resulting in um, hypotent some element of hypotension. Yeah. Um, do, you, and, do you normally run inotropes or vasopressors as you're doing the induction or? Yes. Uh, yeah, I would for this patient. So do I normally? No. Um, and yeah, that's why I'm running it for this patient. Yeah. Good, good. Uh, okay, let's say on induction, the blood pressure falls to 70 millimeters mercury. Uh, what do you do? Uh, so I'd confirm the reading um, by checking for a pulse, looking at the height of the transducer, yep. uh, and then That's I would um, temporize the, the situation by giving a one milligram bolus of metaraminol and tilting the patient head down um, while doing a... Um, quick scan of the monitor, um, doing a quick A to E assessment note and notifying the surgeons that had significant hypotension. They may not be in the room at this point, but um, and as well as letting my anaesthetic assistant know that I may need assistance from them shortly. Yeah, good. Uh, let's say the blood pressure goes back up to about 85, 90, but then in the next couple of minutes falls back to about 70. What do you do? So, uh, and my metaraminol, I'd uh, increase my metaraminol infusion uh, so i'd probably started at five milligrams per hour and uh, double it at this point i'd um, give a 250 mil bolus of crystalloid mm -hmm. and then working through my um, a to e approach i'd um, first turn to 100 percent oxygen um, manually ventilate um, looking at the chest rise and fall um, oscillating to exclude a pneumothorax looking at the neck veins and the trachea midline mm -hmm. um, from a circulation point of view at this point i'd review the heart rate um, and auscultate the lungs is another thing that's more likely that you're trying to rule out than a pneumothorax yeah, so uh, in the setting of um, bronchospasm, there's potential for dynamic hyperinflation as well. So um, I guess just severe wheeze would make me review the ventilation settings and consider an intermittent disconnection as this may be contributing to the patient's um, state. If there's uh, also significant wheeze, that may point towards anaphylaxis as a differential in this patient. Sounds good. And what do you think is most likely? There's, there's no extra wheeze. Uh, it's very mild wheeze uh, still present. Um, otherwise, no other signs of tracheal deviation or absence of breath sounds. What do you think is most likely? Uh, it, I think in this patient, the most likely um, cause of significant hypotension is just sepsis um, and 
hypovolemia associated with their bowel obstruction. Right. Uh, so my treatment would be aimed at restoring blood volume and vasopressor support initially, um, but dynamic hyperinflation is a concern. So I would be evaluating the, um, the plateau or peak pressures required to ventilate. And if there was high ventilation pressures, then I'd do an intermittent disconnection. That's good. So that was really good. So just to feedback on that. So the things, the structures that James did then, which I found really helpful is uh, in some of my lectures, I'll go through the four phases. So essentially phase one is safety and it's gone through a process of just checking his readings, making sure that they're accurate. Um, and then, you know, you, you wouldn't need help for this as an advanced trainee. So, you know, coin club and mentioning to the surgeons uh, as well is useful in terms of the you know, that first phase of just getting everything safe and checking your reading. Uh, but then you've gone into a temporization phase. You've given a bit of matter animal, a bit of fluid, uh, legs up, uh, and then you're going straight away to diagnosis. And your, so your um, perceptions were right. Like, uh, you know, it, it, this is essentially most likely sepsis, but you do a few things to rule out other more serious things that could happen. Anaphylaxis, severe bronchospasm, gas trapping, and maybe even pneumothorax. So your probability gamut was right. And that's exactly what's happened here. So say with your management, yeah, with your management, uh, you've given fluids, you've given your aramines now at uh, 10 milligrams an hour, um, and that seems appropriate for the septic patient. The wheeze is actually resolved with the increased bronchodilator that you've been administering. Um, so the wheeze is resolved, chest, the ventilation is great. You're ventilating with 20, 20 25 centimeters of water um, for, for normal tidal volumes in the normal respiratory. So everything recovers. It, and now say an hour into the operation, it is a difficult operation, lots of adhesions. Uh, and 40, so out of, so 40 minutes to an hour into the operation, you notice the temperature is now 40. Uh, what do you think is happening? What do you do? So what do I think is happening? Um, the most likely diagnosis is worsening sepsis, mm -hmm. um, but differentials would include other hypermetabolic conditions uh, such as MH, neuromuscular, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, serotonin syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, and is there any other cause of hypothermia? Oh, there definitely is. Due to error. Um, sorry, what was that? I, I was about to say, yeah, there definitely is. You're, you're definitely <laughs> down the right track with that one. But which one, which one am I thinking? <laughs> um, yeah, and so they're, they're my major concerns at this point. And what I would do is um, so I'd start actively cooling the patient. Um, so this would ensure that I wasn't warming the patient with a bear hugger and um, turning it on to the, um, the lowest setting. Uh, I would. You mentioned uh, these differentials. How do you rule them out? Hmm. So. I could look for rigidity um, from an there's, MH point of view. There's no rigidity. Anything else with MH? Uh, other things uh, would include urinary changes. Uh, if there's a tachycardia um, or in elevation in um, the entitled CO2. Good. Entitled CO2 is 30 with ventilation of six litres per minute. So it's, it's, it's in the realms of pretty normal. Mm. Blood pressure has risen. So you, you've now done a similar thing. You've scanned your monitors and you're checking the readings as well. And the blood pressure has risen to 150 on 100 and the heart rate is 150. Right. Okay. So the patient is now mildly hypertensive uh, and has a significant tachycardia um, as well as being hypothermic. Um, and I would also like to check the 
oxygenation at this point. Um, oxygenation is good. Okay, that's great. Uh, and the rhythm, so is it sinus versus um, some other rhythm? Good. Um, it is sinus rhythm. It's just the sinus tachy at 150. Yeah. Now, Olympus is the viva and, you know, you can't see the patient right there. Think of the case and is there another differential that you really want to rule out? You mentioned serotonin syndrome. You so, can rule that uh, pretty easily. But, but of course, yes. So uh, this patient has a goiter. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so they may be hyperthyroid. Great. You get a call back from the lab. The TFT results are high T3 and high T4. TSH is low. Uh, what do you make of that picture? Uh, can I just so TSH was low, high uh, T3 and T4. So yes. Yeah. So um, this is consistent with um, uncontrolled hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, yeah, this together with the current situation is concerning for thyroid storm. Um, so that's good. What is thyroid storm? Uh, so it is. Uh, hyperthyroidism associated with significant systemic manifestations. Um, often it's cardiovascular, such as um, tachyarrhythmias, AF, heart failure, um, but it can be other organ dysfunction as well, liver, renal dysfunction, um, central nervous system dysfunction, and in this case, the hypothermia is also potentially contributing. Good. So, yeah, life-threatening exacerbation or decompensation of pre-existing hyperthyroid state and it's a clinical diagnosis based on fever, uh, tachycardia, tachypnea, and other, other signs in the awake patient. Uh, so what do you do for this patient? What's the treatment? Uh, so, First of all, actually, have you ever had a thyroid storm case and tried to treat it? I've seen one in ICU previously mm. as a medical student a while ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I've never seen one. So this is all talking in theory, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so there's uh, supportive therapy, which um, the mainstay of which is cooling, beta blockades, um, paracetamol, uh, and then anti-thyroid therapy, noting that the beta blocker of choice is propranolol due to the decreased conversion of T4 to T3. Before we uh, go on with that, how do you feel about beta blocking a septic patient? Yeah, it's a there is a risk of um, precipitating cardiovascular instability. Uh, and so uh, ideally you do it with a short acting agent initially to uh, assess the response. Um, but noting that um, for, to maintain cardiac output, um, this patient may well need a reduced heart rate. So it may be beneficial in this setting. Yeah, sounds good. Mm. Uh, keep going with the treatment. What other treatments are available? Yeah, so uh, anti-thyroid therapy, um, propyl thiouracil um, is typically first line in thyroid storm um, because of the decreased peripheral conversion of T4 to T3 as well as the decreased production. Um, carbimazole can be used down the line and then um, occasionally Lugol's iodine is used and steroids have a, um, are usually recommended as well in the acute phase because of the decreased conversion of T4 to T3. Similarly, they need adequate hydration and potentially ICU care, uh, often ICU care to manage the systemic manifestations as well as endocrinology involvement. Excellent. Can you give carbimazole IV or do you have to have them wake up first? I don't know. Yeah, good. There's a, there is an IV... Uh, equivalent called methimazole which you can give IV right okay but anyway that was a good that was good um as a framework so I've got supportive treatment and then actual you know, medical treatments 
supportive being what you mentioned, cool patient hydration. I've also got here just oxygen and ventilation. And then you've got a whole bunch of stuff for thyroid, which is reduction of synthesis, reduction of peripheral conversion, and decrease the metabolic effects. And some of these medications span all three categories. So I, when I'm thinking about this, I, find I didn't really worry about each of those three categories separately because that just feels like it's too much brain power. And practically speaking, what do I do? I just give steroids. I give the, you know, the anti-iodine type things. Uh, and then I give the methimazole and I give the propyl thyroidosol and beta blockers. So really just these five medical treatments that I can list off. And if hopefully if asked, I will have memorized some of these doses, even though I would have not given them in my, you know, and not many people would have given them in anesthetic practice. Uh, and how do you feel that this, obviously beta blockers are a bit of a concern in this patient. Any other reasons why beta blockers would be a concern in this patient? Uh, uh, so the history of COPD. Um, Sounds good. Is, yeah. At the end of the surgery, you notice a red mark on the cornea where you tape the eyes. Uh, but due to the proptosis, the eyes didn't tape, didn't close correctly. So what do you do? Got a bit of a red mark. Looks like a bit of a graze. I, I would carefully document um, and then um, provide initial first aid. So I think in this situation, um, at the very least, a lubricating eye drop, but uh, maybe some Clorsig ointment as well, um, and then with a plan to have the patient reviewed by ophthalmology um, and um, to pr proceed with open disclosure and ongoing management, de depending on the sequelae. Mm -hmm. Anything else besides what you've said there for the overall management? We've got a red mark on it, specific to the eye. Uh, or just holistic. Holistic. Okay. So this is this is the patient with thyroid storm and sepsis uh, for yeah, for the laparotomy. So oh, um, it is about the eye lesion. Yeah, the eye. yeah right. Um, additional thoughts, so uh, nothing's coming to mind. Anytime you get a complication, what else do you need to do besides manage the complication medically? Uh you mentioned open disclosure. Yeah. I like to give this as a bundle. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, re refer it to the M&M, put in an incident report and um, uh, talk to my MPA. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Reporting yeah. risk man, M&M, open disclosure, indemnity insurance. That's, what is that? The, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The five, the five pronged attack of safety and, you know, risk management and everything. Right. Yeah. Good, good. Again, so, uh, so as we've gone through this vibe, you know, I've just been hitting you with clinical after clinical. Then we've done, you know, crisis management. And then the crisis management just stopped abruptly and suddenly you've woken the patient up. They've got a bit of a graze on the eye. You've just saved a life in theatre. And now I'm asking you about, you know, reporting and risk man and stuff. But that's that's the way, uh, you know, this, this is an exam of everything, really. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's right. Okay. No, that's pretty good. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll end it there. We've, that's a good part of, uh, I think that's been, yeah, that's been about 40 minutes. That's about right. Yeah, well, good. Uh, how do you think you went, James? Um, oh, okay. Room for improvement, significant room for improvement. Um, oh, look, I was really happy with how you went. So and I, I, you can't really sell yourself, but I, I think you did really well in that. Yeah. To give you feedback, like, I think I've give, given you feedback along along the way, but like your structures are sound. 
when I, from the top, when I, when I ask someone for ADE assessment and management, I want them to be able to rattle off things. You get, a, get I think you get away a lot in this exam by saying things quickly because you just move through very quickly. So having rehearsed answers for literally what I do to assess and optimize A, B, C, D, E. And I'm sure I've, I've, uh, I've got a, slow, wasn't it? Um, was that, sorry? That was probably a little bit slow in general, would you say? Oh, look, it was a, it was a good speed. If you, if you can, yeah, if you can get that faster, fantastic. Um, and I've got a video on the deteriorating patient and optimization, which you can kind of, uh, anyone really, whether you're an intern or resident or anesthetic training, you can, re, you know, you, re, you can rehearse these things. Things like being able to, for breathing rates, R-A-T-E-S is one thing, the ARC, ALS programs, that's what we use. So okay. respiratory rate, auscultation, tracheal de deviation or tug, effort and sats. It's a really easy way of just listing some of the core stuff about breathing assessment. Um, but yeah, I, th I thought you went through it pretty fast. And as you can see, the essence of this was, you know, you have to go top to tail because once you say I, for E exposure, I do, you know, exposure to the whole patient, obviously you'll notice large goiter, but let's say you really had to look for a rash or something. There's always some clue. And in this particular thing, it was the goiter that was uh, standing out uh, mm. once you've done the top to tail assessment. Uh, I mentioned that you did the a to E well, and then you did the goiter-specific history and assessment well. Uh, you optimized the bronchospasm or wheeze before the induction. Uh, and then we did a, yep, yeah, your induction's absolutely fine. Uh, the blood pressure fell. That's right. The, um, you know, a lot of this exam, as I mentioned in my course, you know, when, if you get to an arrest, it's a protocolized thing. So it's actually very, pretty easy. It doesn't separate candidates too much, mm -hmm. but then you're just managing small changes. The blood pressure drops to 70, not 20 but it redrops to 70. What do you do? Yeah. And how do you manage these very small changes? And as you know, it's almost like you just try to be in that moment to do what you normally would do, because that's probably realistic enough. There'll be a variability amongst most people, what they do, but you know, you just do something realistic that you do in real life. And you know, that, that's the answer. Uh, I like that you, like you, you went to some of the weird and wonderful things when the temperature rose to 40, you know, MH, neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS and serotonin syndrome. The, and the next level is I would rule these out by entire CO2 rigidity, tachycardia, tachycardia, mm -hmm. whatever. And then I rule sure. that MH straight away. Serotonin, look for, look for the serotonergic drugs, um, rule them out. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome is dopaminergically acting agents, rule those out. But in this one, it was thyroid storm and I offered you the TFT results. And then we managed thyroid storm, as we mentioned, supportive and then medical uh, and finally, anytime you get a complication, you manage the complication, then report risk man opened. We should make a mnemonic for that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. sure. Yeah. If the uh, listeners or viewers have any mnemonics for all the uh, administrative stuff that you have to do around a error, please uh, share it with us. But that's good. Um, let's, uh, I guess we can wrap it there. Uh, any, any questions before we close off? Uh, no, no, thanks um, so much for running it. Okay, good. Let's wrap it up there. Thanks very much for listening and watching. This is ABCs of Anesthesia. And uh, yeah, we'll just keep uploading a few more of these Viva style, uh, you know, Viva style videos and, and podcasts where you know, I'll actually be going through with someone else, having a discussion. Hopefully you can take away what it's like to have this questioning process. Like it's not, it's not really adversarial. It's, it's just exploring issues. And you'll find that so many people have really interesting ways of approaching things that we can learn from. Um, and hopefully there's a lot of good knowledge and techniques that we get out of this as well. So thanks very much. And uh, see you guys next time.